grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, did you enjoy the soup supper tonight, those of you who did go? Hopefully you did. I think it's really nice that we're getting back to those soup suppers because they are and they have been a wonderful tradition around here at Peace. The Advent and Christmas seasons certainly are full of wonderful traditions, both at church and in the home, that evoke that nostalgic feeling that comes on so strong during this time of year. Here's one first for you who were born last century. Do you remember that old cream of wheat commercial going way back? The tagline was, have it for a nutritious breakfast and cream of wheat stays with you the whole day through. Remember that? Some of you might. What stayed with me was not so much the hot cereal itself, but the image that the commercial special effects crew worked up to make it look like there was an actual bowl of the steaming hot cereal staying atop your head like a hovering halo all through the day, your whole day through. As a kid, I was really impressed with that. And I remember eating a big bowl of cream of wheat hot cereal and then waving my hand over my head to see if I got mine. (laughs) Kind of like, uh, I ate all my food, did I earn my halo? Well, tonight... I'm picturing you all with a bowl of hearty soup hovering over your heads. They say when public speaking, you should picture the people listening in their underwear. Uh Uh-uh. You're all wearing hot, teeming bowls of soup that are staying with you from the soup supper. Now, what does this have to do with Moses in Exodus chapter 40, you ask? We're getting to that. In sort of a nostalgic way itself, Exodus chapter 40 recounts the construction of a very significant tradition that the recently freed nation of Israel practiced in their early years for about 40 years, to be more accurate. Chapter 40 of Exodus records the erecting of the tabernacle, the tabernacle which would accompany the Israelites everywhere they'd go as they wandered their way through the wilderness and then finally into the promised land. To say the tabernacle was an important milestone in the redemptive history of Israel and in the church's shared history with Israel would be to understate it immensely. The tabernacle was indeed of central importance that cannot be overstated. For proof of that, just hop over for one second to our gospel reading tonight. Take a quick look there at John chapter 1, And in verse 14, uh, this, by the way, is our traditional Christmas Day reading as well, and for good reason. Verse 14 says, the Word, that is the Word who was with and the Word who is God, became flesh, was incarnated, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Who is that talking about? Well, that is Jesus, our Emmanuel, of course. God with us. The Greek word skenao, for dwelt among us, underscores this presence of God with us. Skenao is the very word used in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, to describe God's presence among his people in the tent of meeting 
a.k.a. the tabernacle. We see this being constructed in our Old Testament lesson tonight, right there in Exodus 40. So now, look back more closely with me at these construction details that God himself lays out through his servant Moses in Exodus 40. There's a beautiful picture there of promise that emerges, promise that finds its fulfillment in Christ our Emmanuel. Verse 19 says, And Moses spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it just as the Lord had commanded him. What did this tent covering uh, spread out over the erected pillars of the tabernacle consist of? The Lord had commanded Moses in the previous chapter, chapter 39, to make this tent covering out of four layers consisting mainly of animal skins. Just right there, the use of animal skins, uh, you should recall at that point, to your own mind, the idea of sacrifice, like the very first sacrifice, God sacrificed to cover over the nakedness and shame of Adam and Eve after they sinned against him in the garden. Genesis 3 says that they had tried to hide themselves with fig leaves that they had sewn together, but God made for them coverings of animal skin, foreshadowing, of course, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as described in John's Gospel. Okay, so the layers, the four layers we're talking about, the first or outer layer of skins was made from marine animals or possibly, as the King James Version translates it, badger skins. It's hard to translate the exact word, which is sometimes translated porpoise skin or otter, but it seems to function well as an all-weather outer covering of the tabernacle, whatever it ended up being exactly uh, constructed from. Okay, so that's the first layer, the outer layer. The next layer of the tent covering of the tabernacle uh, was ram skin dyed red. It's easy to associate the red dye with the blood that was shed by the ram sacrificed, right? For as Hebrews 9.22 points out, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So that's the next layer, the ram skin, skin dyed red. Thirdly, underneath the red ram skin was a layer of black goat skin that was interestingly laid out in two sections. Perhaps you recall the two goats sacrificed in Israel on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Actually, there was only one that was actually slain in this one offering before the Lord. Onto the second goat was transferred the sins of the people, while the blood of the first goat that was slain was sprinkled on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle's Holy of Holies. The second goat, the scapegoat, was allowed to escape with its life into the uninhabited wilderness. Its sin being covered by the first goat that had no sins transferred to it, so its blood was innocent, covering over the other goat where the sins were transferred to. So looking at the tabernacle 
tabernacle layers. That's easy for you to say. Uh, once again, this two-section black goat, skin goat layer, black for the sin, was covered over by that next outward layer of ram skin dyed red. Again, what a beautiful picture then of the innocent lamb of God who died to take away our sins, the sins of the people who are set free and are forgiven by God. Finally, the innermost layer of the tabernacle consisted of fine linen. This was the only layer of the floor coverings you could see upon entering inside the tabernacle. Skilled workers were commissioned by Moses to sew uh, into this layer of fabric figures of holy cherubim with their six-winged likeness. But the interesting thing about this layer, I'd like to point out, is the colors of this innermost layer of tent coverings. This layer was to be made up of blue, purple, scarlet, and white. Now, the symbolism of each color is not laid out for us here in the Exodus account, all right? But coincidentally, today, we still see each of these colors, liturgically speaking, in the church for its times and seasons. Blue, for example, just look up at the altar area at the pyramids today. This, this is the color of Advent, and we saw blue in that inner layer in the tabernacle. Blue is all over God's house. Blue is the color of the sky from which God comes down to dwell with his people. Here's what John says about that again from our gospel tonight. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known, from verse 18. Jesus makes the invisible God seeable again without the otherwise inevitable result of death by holiness overdose. After all, even Moses was not allowed to see God, was he? And verse 35 from our Exodus lesson tonight says, neither could Moses enter the tabernacle, quote, because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This God to whom we could not draw too close draws close enough to us now in Jesus our Emmanuel to suckle and to coo and to die our death and rise with new life to bestow upon us by faith. Blue. The next color was purple mentioned. We are familiar with the liturgical use of the color purple, aren't we? The penitential season of Lent adopts this color, most likely in deference to the royal purple robe placed upon Jesus as the Roman soldiers mocked his identity as the king of the Jews. But it also bespeaks the royal priesthood that the risen and ascended Lord Jesus graciously confers upon you and me. Forgiven Gentile sinners, once not a people at all, but now a kingdom of priests and co-heirs with Christ our King. The next color is scarlet. Liturgically speaking, this is our latest addition around here at Peace. We recently acquired scarlet pyramids that I believe have only been put to use but once on account of the pandemic so far. But the scarlet comes into play during Holy Week, where, for example, Jesus on Holy Thursday offers his disciples 
his holy and innocent blood, scarlet-colored blood, and the words of institution for the Lord's Supper that we celebrate regularly for the forgiveness of all your sins. And lastly, white, the color of purity and holiness, especially on Christmas and Easter. Among other select places in the church here, we see the white and we behold the glory of the word made flesh as God comes to dwell among us, his people who have received this little holy one and by his grace and truth received also ourselves the right to be called children of God. Christmas. The white of Resurrection Sunday, Easter, points to the resurrection that Christ himself secured for you and me. His resurrection from the dead where we too will be raised with him in the likeness of his resurrection without the sin that still clings to our mortal bodies today. But then we shall be robed in glistening white ourselves. Indeed, in the robe of Christ's righteousness, which we already wear by faith. Unlike that bowl of cream of wheat, this is no fiction either. Although, like God himself, we as yet do not see that pure righteousness with earthly eyes. Nor do we see the crown of life which, we, which he bestows upon all of us who believe. But we endure nevertheless in that belief until at last our faith becomes sight. The tabernacle with all this wonderfully rich imagery then points to and reminds us of all this. So that's the tabernacle then, all dressed up and ready to be indwelt by God himself as he would come to ancient Israelites in their wilderness journey. Verse 38 says, For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So what about that last part now then? The cloud and the pillar of fire. That's the most important part, isn't it? Without the presence of the Lord, the tabernacle is just a curious tent that smells like badgers and goats. What are we, ourselves, apart from the presence of the Lord in our own lives? Man, without the life of God within him, is empty and lost and just a mere shell of what he was originally created to be in God's image and likeness. Our hearts are black with sin and we are naked and afraid without adequate covering for our own shame and guilt. We are certainly not fit to be a dwelling place for the most high God in and of ourselves, are we? But here's the most important part and the most amazing part of this story and where the truth and grace come in. Indeed, grace upon grace. Not only does God make his dwelling among us in Christ, the Son of God, made in human flesh in our likeness, but in sending his Holy Spirit, the triune God accomplishes the unthinkable. God, through the Holy Spirit, takes up residence within us unworthy sinners. Wow. Just as the sacrificed skins of animals made at least a fitting temporary dwelling for God's presence in the tabernacle, so the sacrifice of Jesus 
God in human skin makes us sinful human beings a fitting dwelling for his presence as well. Only unlike the tabernacle in and out of which God would come and go, God the Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence within us with his promise to never leave us, never forsake us. Such was the superior sacrifice of the God-man Jesus over that of goats and rams and heifers. This is the good news Christ's church through the holy apostles preached from the very beginning. Peter, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off for all whom the Lord our God will call. We can take this good news to the world, you and I. St. Paul, do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. 1 Corinthians 9. Then on that first Pentecost Sunday, the birthday of the church, the Lord even cleared the smoke from the eyes and let all the believers there see the little pillar of fire floating above their own heads to assure them of his presence among them in his new temple. Or should I say, renewed temple. For God fashioned this human body of ours long, long ago, didn't he? He doesn't always allow us to see the little flame going with us wherever we go. But rest assured, we have his promise that he's here with us, our Emmanuel. And that word is faithful and amen. And now may he who resides within you and began a good work in you bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.